Ladies and gentlemen, faithful listeners, boys, girls, welcome back to another episode of the Keystone Chronicles podcast. Guys, this week we are joined by Taylor Fleischer with a great conversation from two Pennsylvania boys. Just kicking it, man. Um, we go over some some stuff about how he got addicted to the game of archery hunting, whether or not he's a trophy hunter, specific deer that he likes to hunt, uh, hunting mobily, a couple heartbreak stories, and blood tracking. Um, you're going to see a common thing, I think, moving forward before the season starts, where I do a lot of talking about uh, tracking deer, and I think that there, you know, it's it's a really an art. And there's a lot to be learned and said from it. And the biggest thing that I have found is learning from others' mistakes. And I, I have myself has made plenty of mistakes tracking deer. And uh, so, so have many other people. So I like to bring that up and kind of go over that. And I just want to point out, guys, you know, we need to make ethical shots as hunters. And if you can't do that, I'm sorry, but you need to stay out of the woods. So if you're confident that you're... 40 50 60 yards whatever you're shooting at all the time and you're putting in all the time and you know that you're going to make an ethical shot at that by all means you know have at her uh when you're in the in the cut or you're in the timber and you are in a little bit of a thicket you know i want you just to mind that or if you're shooting at that twilight type hour that you can't really see everything that's out in front of you whether you think it or not so Guys, always just just run that through your head, and uh, we just want to be ethical. I just wanted to push that out there real quick. Guys, I want to thank everybody that's been reaching out. Uh, I've been super busy as of late, and uh, my wife is working um, later hours at night, so it's been very uh, tough and difficult to be able to sit down and, and, and try to go over everything with the podcast. So uh, probably for right now, I am going to do two episodes a month until uh, we can kind of get our schedules figured out together and uh, my work kind of dies down. I'm, I'm working a lot of extra hours. So thank you all for being patient. I have a, two really good episodes coming up for you this month. And then I have a couple things here on the back burner going into the season I think will be really good. And uh, if you guys have any questions, need help with anything, feel free to reach out to me. I will help you in any way I can. If you guys hear anybody on the show that you'd like to reach out to or you can't contact, please reach out to me and I can also help out with that. So here we go with Taylor Fleischer. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed his time and uh, I think you guys will too. Thank you. God bless. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Keystone Chronicles podcast. Guys, we were just talking before we come on, and uh, we, we, we're ready to go for this one. We, we're ready to talk whitetails. I told him it's been a while, and uh, I, need to, I need to get that whitetail talk out of my system. So, ladies and gentlemen, Taylor Fleischer, um, here we go, man. This is going to be a good conversation. I, I, I think that me and you can, can really go down a rabbit hole for a couple things here, man. So, uh, before we get started, just let everybody know who you are and kind of what you're all about. Yeah, I'm Taylor Fleischer, born and raised in Pennsylvania. Um, uh, raised here, went to school here, and I hunt here. I mean, that's pretty much uh, the bulk of the bulk of my outdoor life has been in in Pennsylvania. Um, started rifle hunting like like most young men at ten to twelve, and uh, got into archery at thirteen or fourteen, and um, that kind of took over. So, um, a bulk of my hunting is is archery. Um, we always try to fill some tags with a rifle mm-hmm. um, after season if if we need to get some some meat for family and friends. But uh, 
I'm I'm an archery guy. That's that's my preference. Um, even the late season archery is has its own unique challenge, which um, I thoroughly enjoy. So you know we'll get right into it. And you said you started archery hunting like right around the time you were 13, 14 or so. And I just kind of want you to talk about what happened there, right? Because you were probably raised in a family where even if they were archery hunters or whatnot. Um, you were raised in that time where, where the rifle hunting was probably more prominent, more popular than, you know, archery. Because modern day archery is like just exploded, you know. And it makes sense because you and I know why. It's just, it's just, uh, yeah. it's so much, so much more, I want say more exciting. It's just every aspect of it. You're, you see deer chasing in the rut or you just, the amount of time you have to put in and um, how much better it feels when you kill. Because you, you probably did put more time in and you scouted more and you tried to hone your woodsmanship and, there's just so much that goes into it, um, or or the off time shooting your bow as opposed to shooting your rifle in one or two days, you know. Um, so, um, loaded question, but how did that happen, right? So, kind of walk me down that path of here's how I got addicted to archery, and this is the bug that bit me. Yeah. So I at 13, my father was not an archery hunter. Um, he hunted when he was younger, but growing up. Um, he had an old golden eagle that was in our basement for a long time that really never left the basement. Um, so I kind of started archery hunting, um, not necessarily on the lead of my father, but a friend of mine's father who was a diehard archery man, and he hunted everywhere with a bow, and that's pretty much all he hunted with. And he kind of got me hooked onto it, and uh, I kind of grabbed it and didn't let go i mean we we would shoot together uh friends of friends of mine would shoot together um we'd have to have our parents you know drive us to to meet up and shoot and and once i started hunting um you know it was i got into archery at 13 but i probably didn't start feeling comfortable enough to hunt until maybe 14 so um we went to their cabin up in northern pennsylvania and we archery hunted there and I shot my first buck with a bow um, there. And I learned a pal from that hunting experience. And that kind of, it hooked me. I mean, I, I, there was no other, no, I had never experienced that intimate of a relationship with, or that intimate of an experience, I should say, with a deer mm-hmm. um, than, than that, that first archery buck. Um, I had killed buck with a, a rifle before that, but, but there is... There is such an intimate relationship between you and that deer in the archery woods that, you know, it's unmatched. I mean, you, you can't you can't replicate it with a rifle. You're you're rarely that close, and and you rarely have you know that type of connection. Yeah, that's that's a great answer, brother. I I agree one hundred percent with you. And it's so funny that uh, you know before you even got into that that story that I understood or just kind of assumed that. <clears throat> Maybe your background growing up wasn't so much that archery, and then, um, you know, you you were kind of bred into it from somebody else or whatever. And uh, my story's not quite uh, different. My dad was an archery hunter a little bit before uh, I kind of got into it. But it's so funny that you said that the golden eagle because <laughs> that's what I had was one of them golden eagles sitting in the basement, and um, you know, dad set me up with it. And I remember it's real funny uh, the release on the side. The, the rest was um, just like a piece of uh, rubber, 
if you will, like uh, tough rubber. And we got those square sticky pads that you peel one side off and you can peel the other side off. And I remember <laughs> had like four of them out there sticking out of the side. And I probably was only shooting 20 pounds or whatever. But I remember my dad and, and uh, my dad's friends and my uncle and stuff taking us to uh, 3D tournaments. And I remember arrows bing, 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 flying all over the place, hitting yeah. hitting things and, and growing up like that. And it's really wonderful, man. And I remember the first year I shot with a bow, and I'll, I'll never forget it. Not that I will forget the first year I shot with a rifle, but you're right. I mean, it's it's so hard to compare that kind of yeah intimate just connection with with um, you know killing something, and then well, hunters always get that bad rap of just like killing things, right? But it's not really what's going on, and it's hard to explain to people that aren't in the crowd or really understand but that connection with a with a bow like you said it seems to be a lot more it feels like you worked a little bit harder maybe or put more in more skin into that game and then when it happens you feel like um you gave the deer more of a chance if you will or the animal whatever you may be hunting and it was it's it's kind of like hey you know just it's weird like i know i sometimes i'll touch my animals and i'll just be like you know thank you and you know, that, that, that connection of, of things and all that. But, um, you know, you've been, you've been archery hunting for a good while now. And uh, I know that you've shot some really nice bucks and would you consider, would you consider yourself more of a, um, larger antler, larger, uh, deer, more mature deer hunter now? Uh, or are you kind of like a opportunistic hunter? You know, do you, Hey, I only have so much time to get out there. I want to get out there. I want to get this done. I know that there's some pretty decent deer in here. And if, you know, God help me, if that deer comes out and it gives me that, that good shot, I'm going to knock him down. Yeah. I, I wouldn't classify myself as a trophy hunter. Um, I, I will say this though. Um, I do find great satisfaction in setting your sights on one specific deer mm. and doing everything in your power to kill that deer um, because there's a huge amount of satisfaction with a six-month body of work going into killing one specific animal and, and finally sealing the deal than there is um, a buck you've never seen before. Mm. So I... I'm, I feel like I may be transitioning to that one specific buck um, only. It's kind of an all-or-nothing deal, but I'm still one of those guys that um, if it's close to Pope, I, I'm going to have a difficult time passing that deer. Um, that being said, every season's different. Every, every uh, buck inventory season is different, so depending on what I've got available to me dictates how uh, how strict I am with my my decision making process as far as which buck I'm gonna shoot. So um, no, I'm but I'm a firm believer of you do not pass your personal best buck. So if if your best buck is a hundred inch eight point, do not pass a hundred and ten inch eight point because you might get a one forty. I'm I'm a firm believer that as much as you know, we, we preach practicing and scouting and, and shooting your bow a lot and, and running your tree stand up and down a tree before the season and, and practice, practice, practice. But you also have to practice killing. You have to practice killing deer because it's like training camp for, foot, for football. You've got, 
you've got all those months to get ready, but you really don't know how it's going to work out until you're in the game. So you have to figure out how you react when you're under pressure. And I'm a firm believer of, of practice killing. I mean, kill does. Even if, you, if you're not a meat guy, kill does. Somebody will take them. This Hunter Sharing the Harvest program is an excellent program in this state. And, and I'm a firm believer of getting doe tags and killing those doe because it's just a notch in your belt because it's better to practice on a doe than the buck of a lifetime. Yeah, yeah I think that you make a valid point. And um, I want to say that <clears throat> my dad has said for years and years and years, and he is right, um, this is not a spectator sport. Okay, If you want to go watch deer and look at deer, go to a penned-in farm and go watch and look at deer. Um, you got to right. shoot them with something. And I say something because I know guys that shoot them with a camera, right? But they're out there, right. and they're not just spectating. They're, they're being part of it. And I do preach all the time that even if I'm not going to shoot this doe group or this single doe or whatever that come up, I will pull the bow back, and I'll get in position to kill her. And I just it's just yes. that, that – those reps, you know, and just, just even getting that practice of being able to get your bow back with multiple deer around you and not get busted or just kind of getting that sweet spot of, okay, the deer's over here. I'm going to get my bow back when they walk behind that bush. And then three steps later, I'll already be, you know, where I need to be to make the shot. Right. Um, and right. that's, it's just muscle memory, you know, it's, and it's practice, whatever you want to call it but it also helps your mindset. And like you said, uh, there's, there's multiple different things that I've been told from people that uh, I, I do try to practice now. And that's like the cold shot. You know, if I get home from work or whatever, and um, I, I decide I'm going to go in the woods and hunt that night, I will shoot an arrow into my block. Even if I'm 10 yards away, it doesn't matter. One arrow. Bling, and it's just like, it's it just, I, I compared it to like a pitcher in baseball. You know, you, you, you put the, or, or a uh, quarterback, you put the sleeve on and keep, just keep your arm warm, right? And you, you're always ready to go. And um, with the mental state of things, I think that, that that really, I think that really helps. And, and like you said, also, you went three years in a buck drought and um, the buck of a lifetime just come up and, and you botched a shot. And maybe all them does that you passed the last couple of years or whatever are kind of coming back to haunt you because, you know, I, hey, you could have killed them. But I do I do understand <clears throat> some guys don't want to kill what they don't eat. I don't kill things that I don't really eat. Um, you know, we did talk about the crow and stuff. Like, I don't eat the crow, but um, I don't really kill things I don't eat. But, yes, there there is a, there is a place for doe to be shot. Um, we need we need to keep the population correct. Uh, I do my share of doe killing. Uh, I think that they taste wonderful, <laughs> so I have no problem killing them. Um, but for the other reason, you know, I think that that's how I can stay, you know, relevant and stay in that mode, that killing mode, and that that mindset of being able to do it all the time. So that's a that's a great you know it's a great thing to talk about right there, and um, it's it's. It's something that I really wish everybody would practice because I've even brought it up a couple times. Like, guys see all the stuff on television, and that can really ruin stuff because, oh, well, you know, and not to use any names, but, like, like juries, they shoot giant deer, and they're they're very well-known, and they're on lots of television series, and, and God bless them because, you know, they them guys, they put in all their work. They're farmers, 
You know what I mean? They're, they're, they, it's what they do. It's what they're good at. Um, but the thing is then a lot of people see that and they're like, oh, well, I got to kill 170 inch deer and like they're out there. Yeah. But it's not just that easy. You know, I, I think that you should go shoot that hundred inch buck, shoot that 110 inch deer, whatever, whatever. Or maybe it's not even antlers. Maybe let's just talk body size, right? The maturity of the animal and sh- go and try to kill a mature whitetail because when you can start doing that, I don't care how big the antlers are. Like, you know, that six year old deer that you just fold, he's fooled a lot of people in his life and you should feel very good whether he's 110 or 160 inches. So, um, I kind of like the way that they look at things up north, and I don't know if you're real familiar with with some northern guys, but, you know, they they could give two shits what antlers are on deer's head. You know, they want to know right after it's dead, how much does that deer weigh? Instantly. That's like the first thing that they, they're, that's that's what they're worried about. And they want to know how much, you know, mature the animal is, which is is pretty cool. You know, it's a little change of pace, and, and, and I like that, but... I mean, there are some deer out in the Midwest, man, that are some soybean-eating mothers, and they're freaking huge. They are, they're really big. Yes. I have shot some very, very, very large-bodied deer in Ohio, so they're, they're out there. Yeah. So, um. Well, and, and the other thing that, that's, that's also important with that practice killing thing is practice after the shot. I mean, there's not enough guys that practice tracking and, and mm. practice... Um, how you how you're gonna get that deer out of the woods? Practice gutting deer. Practice processing deer. That's all part of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, if if you have to quarter out that deer, hopefully you have practiced quartering out a deer because that's not just if if <laughs> unless you have cell service and you can YouTube how to quarter a deer, um, it's it's gonna be tough for you. So all that stuff, I'm I am a huge um, advocate of proper tracking. I see so many guys that botch the recovery of a deer because A, they went too fast, mm. uh, or I mean, they, they pursued the animal too quickly, or two, they're just looking for blood, not hoof tracks or hair. There's there's a proper way to track and it's slow and steady. They don't mark where they last saw the deer. I mean, all that after the shot stuff is every bit as important, if not more so important than the shot itself because you can make a perfect shot or, or a marginal shot, but if if it's not exactly, um, you know, the pump house station where it dies 50 yards and you watch the white belly roll, you've got a little bit of work because you got to figure out where he is. And that's that's what a lot of guys struggle with is, is the recovery. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be that way. Well, <clears throat> so that's a great conversation too. And basically... You know, how, how is it that you, that you know that, right? How is it that you know what you should probably do and what you probably shouldn't do? And my guess is you've probably been part of either your own tracking or some friends or family's tracking to where you, you muffed it, right? You, you messed up. You guys went in. Absolutely. You know, hey, I made, I made the shot, man. I made the shot. The deer ran. I heard it fall. And... Everybody gets all giggity and excited, and the headlamps come on, and you know you start running through the woods like a hootin' nanny. And next thing you know, you hear that dreaded noise. You know, deer stands up, and God forbid you hit him in the gut because you probably never find that deer, right? Um, you know, if he was piled up and he he's blood clotted now, good luck, right? Especially if he was bedded on the side yeah. of a CRP field, which or a clear cut or something, which they love to do. They're creatures of of edge. You know, they're going to go to where they right. feel safe. 
I mean, I've been there too, man. And that's, that is, you make a great point. I wish that, man, that, that is something that's not talked about enough. That is probably the, for me, that's one of my biggest pet peeves when it comes to hunting. Because I, I see too many guys that are like, bah, I don't wound deer. And I'm like, Dude, don't even say that out loud. Like I have a wooden table right here and I'm knocking on it for you because I've been there. I've done it. And yeah, was it, was it my fault? Probably. You know, I, I mean, other than one time that I blame a broadhead company for the broadheads I received that they just, I mean, they just, they broke the, the feral broke. It should not break there. The arrow should break before that, you know, just some things that happened in that line. That wasn't my fault. The two other ones. Yeah. I take full responsibility for them. You know, the one, the limb I didn't see and the other one, I made a bad shot and you know, what happens? Yep. These, these are, these were giant deer I hit. I don't know. I couldn't tell you if I just. Yep didn't have the practice i don't know if i tell you i wasn't disciplined whatever happened it happened right so there's guys out there that you know well i'm better than you sure good good for you i'm i'm happy for you i hope it never happens to you but at the same time let me tell you i'll be here for for you to cry on whenever it happens because it it's probably going to and um you know there's that that other conversation of being able to get back on the horse and get back in the game right you wound a deer I know a lot of guys are like, I'm done. I'm going to hang it up for the season. Okay. You know, if that's that's the way you feel, no problem. You know, but if, if you're ready to get back in a saddle, then you need to climb in a saddle and learn from your lesson and, and get back out there and, and get one on the ground as soon as you can verify that, hey, maybe I'm not going to find this deer, right? And um, That's right. There, the other side of tracking it, you know, I, I have been a part of the same thing that you've been a part of too many times. And I have so many friends that listen to the show, and I know that they're thinking, oh, man, I've been on these adventures with you, with my deer, with their deer, right? And now, like, <clears throat> man, I just – somebody says I hit a deer my first time, you know, I tell them I just hang out. Don't even get out of your tree stand yep. yet. You know, I, I tell them just don't even – I made a good shot. I don't care. Just wait an hour. Enjoy. Just enjoy being there. You know, well, it's getting dark. I don't care. Just hang out. I'm on the way. I will come help you. Do not get down. Just wait. Just wait. If you need to get down, just give it an hour. Give it an hour. I'll come down. We can just take a look at the spot you shot. If you're kind of unsure, we'll look right there. If we don't like it, we're going to back out. We're going to come back in the morning. It's just not worth, you know, going in at night and, and doing that. And I know God's like, well, it might rain. Well, it might. Yeah. Yeah, it might. You know, and sometimes there are circumstances where I have pushed, you know, and it, and it panned out right you know i know the rain's coming um and there's there's times where you have to make that call but if that doesn't if that's not the nature of the beast then you know when we don't need to go that route i also want to say that i have a friend coming on the podcast very soon he's a blood tracking dog uh I've, I've i've seen these dogs in action they this is this is something that is on the table for us as pennsylvania guys now and i personally believe it's great I'm a big advocate of being able to track a deer with a dog just because I don't want to see them get ruined or lose the meat or go to waste, right? So to being able to use them, the dogs, I, I think is a wonderful thing. I know some people aren't on board with it, but I want to say that if you're going to do that, you know, there are rules that you have to do. You can only walk that blood trail for so long and you need to skedaddle. You don't want to be in there tracking that up and all that other stuff. Um, the other thing I want to say is, you know, if you do lose blood, grid searching is probably the best way to go about it. Uh, I've found deer plenty of times that way. You know, a lot of people know that the deer will go to water. I have found deer go to water. Um, 
you know, if you're if you're in something that's kind of thick and you're walking around and you see that big multi-floor rose thicket that you've never, you, nothing would ever want to go in in your life, your deer's probably laying in there, right? They're going to go somewhere where they feel safe, you know, and I, I've found deer like that. Um, but it is unfortunate, like you said, the guys will get out ahead of themselves. So, you know, mark a blood trail, leave a couple spots where you can go back. And because how many times have you seen a deer do this? And then all of a sudden it goes like this. And you're like, where mm-hmm. did the blood go, right? I've seen that too many times. And what we like to do is if, you, if you're if you the guy out front and you kind of have a an eye, it's like you get an eye for the blood. You're like, oh, this guy has like a hot eye or the hot hand, if you want to call it, right? And that guy's in front and then one or two guys in the rear just kind of giving him a little extra light on the sides. But also, they're, you know, they're kind of belly searching. They're kind of just but they're not going to muff up the blood trail, right? They're, they're going to keep their distance and stay back. And then if he has to stop and double back, then we can make a turn and maybe go another way and look and see if the deer moved another way. But like you said, you know, look for them hoof prints, right? That's another big thing, guys. Don't look for. You see this spot? Oh, look at this spot's kicked up real weird. Well, the deer might have jumped or turned, right? Um, there's a lot. There's a lot that goes into tracking deer. And if you can take somebody with you that's experienced and will teach you how to track a wounded deer, you should most definitely reach out to them and ask them for advice because I'm sure that they'll probably receive you with arms wide open. That's right. Yeah, nobody, nobody wants to lose a deer, and nobody wants to hear about somebody losing a deer. I mean, it's it's a group effort, but but you're right. I mean, I, in my opinion, the, the, the biggest mistake when you're tracking with a party is too many guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, guys walking over the trail. When, when we track deer, it's two guys. Mm-hmm. You have a lead man, and then you have a back man, and you pretty much leapfrog. And you mark blood as you go. We don't take flagging tape or anything, but we almost always, we've all got toilet paper in our bag, so we'll rip off a little square, and you mark last blood. Mm -hmm. And that way you know if you get spun around or get on the wrong trail, if you're following a a healthy deer's hoof prints, you can circle back and get back on blood. But, yeah, you don't, and you don't want to walk on the trail either. I mean, you, yeah, there's... That's a that's an art in and of itself. I mean, there's a reason there was Indian trackers. There's a reason that was a job, right. you know, because it was a it was a specialized skill, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's really important with what we do. And and the other thing is reading the arrow. Know know what kind of blood you're looking at. Smell it. Does it smell sour? I mean that that determines your next step. So yeah. I wish more people and and the only way to practice that stuff is to practice killing. Mm. That's it. I like that. I also want to add in that when it comes to killing deer like this, you know, you got to take an ethical shot, right? Because I know that that's probably something that chaps your ass too, but I know guys that yeah. they're, they'll tell me, oh, I'll wash you the deer 50 yards. And hey, I'm telling you, buddy, I, hey, hats off, hats off, because I, yeah, I won't, I won't. I just, that to me, I, yeah, can I shoot out here in my yard 50 yards? I'll take you back out to 70 and shoot, right? But when it gets in the woods, I've wounded too many deer. I need to be as close as I can. Not because that's where my confidence is, because that's just, I know what can happen in 50 plus yards, right? The, that limb that I can't see, that little thing sticking off the tree that big, what it can do to the arrow, hit that deer, wound it. And uh, I'm not saying don't don't shoot 50 yards. If that's what you're definitely comfortable with, do it. But don't come whining to me if you wounded a deer shooting at it 50 yards. You know what I'm saying? So that's right. It's all it's all personal comfort and 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 if I'm being honest, um, if you can shoot 50 yards, you're probably in the wrong spot. 
because you shouldn't be able to shoot 50 yards if you're in a big buck's backyard. Hmm, I like that. I like that. Yep. Yeah. yeah, we I hunt as much as I can. I like to hunt like <clears throat> the edges of clear cuts and and thickets, you know, and I I always find the bucks kind of scurrying the downwind or the thermal pull side of doe bedding, you know, during the rut. Um, you know, or <clears throat> if I can set up off a scrape kind of downwind of it, but also in front of where you know, I feel like I could cut a buck off on a thicket. And um, you're right. I, The spots I hunt, I don't think you could shoot over 35 yards. I just don't. It's It would be too hard. Plus, you would probably get spotted because I only hunt like 15 to 16 to 17 feet off the ground for the most part. I, I like to use two climbing sticks with two aiders, and I can get up and down the tree quick, um, whether, that's, whether yeah. I'm in a saddle or the tree stand. Um, doesn't matter, you know, pick your poison, whatever, whatever's more comfortable for the day. Um, but you know, I know a lot of guys that like, they like to go really high. I'm a, one of my buddies, I was walking through the woods and I heard this whistle and I'm, I was looking for him. I'm like, what? The? And I looked up a tree and I'm like, what the hell are you doing up there? Now he was in a climber. So I get it. I mean, you can get up in some climbers, you know, I don't say some climbers, most climbers, yeah. but, um, <laughs> it's probably like 30 plus feet in the air i'm like what the hell are you doing he's like oh, i never get busted yeah. i said yeah but no you got a 40 yard shot just to shoot the ground you crazy mother <laughs> <laughs> that's right I mean, yeah that's i know guys that do the same thing i'm like man you get 20 yards straight I'm down you know you, I, you get a 50 yard shot when i got a 20 so. I, they, they get lightheaded up there they gotta take oxygen up with them it's crazy it's crazy to me yeah i'm as far as tree stand height i'm i'm rarely above I'm rarely above 17 feet. I'm usually somewhere between 12 and 17. Yeah. I feel like that's, unless you've got to be, unless you've got to be higher um, due to the the hill above you or, or something, right. I'm not afraid to go higher. It's just, you get much higher than that. I mean, your, your close shots are, are tough. I mean, uh, 45 down to a deer at when you're 20 to 25 feet in the air, that's, that's a, it's a pretty narrow window. Yeah. So. Yeah, the lower you are, the more of that side of the deer you see. Now, you know, while we're on that topic, um, we can kind of segue into that. Are you um, someone that would consider themselves to be like a mobile hunter? Are you um, more of like a, I'm going to place a couple tree stands strategically in these spots, and then I'm going to check thermals, you know, wind, uh, weather, you know, you know whatever have you time of year maybe history with certain deer in certain spots or how do you kind of go about getting out there uh do you hunt on the ground a lot what's your what's your game yeah so most of my stand setups are are permanent um that said i do have um multiple mobile setups that i can throw my back and and adjust if need be um but i have some ladder stands set up um, the buck I shot this past year was out of a ladder stand um, because it was a traditionally good spot. Um, we we modify those stands. Obviously, we check straps every year and and put our lifelines back up. But but uh, certain time, you know, if a tree falls down or or if we see them using a different path, we can adjust. But we have general areas that are historically good, which we keep stands there because you know you you don't always have time, especially after work or whatever, to to, to climb up, it's it's just easier to grab your bow and your backpack and you can be, you know, strapped in in, in 30 minutes. So mm. instead of trying to climb a tree every every time, it's nice to have some permanent units. But 
that said, if we know if we know the buck are running lower than 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 normal, we'll we'll grab our mobile systems and 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 go lower. We'll go where they are if we need to. But for the most part, we have uh, predominantly permanent stands that are, like I said, in in traditionally good areas. Yeah, I would be right in the same boat as you as far as um, in my on my family land. Yeah, I. I have certain spots where uh, ladder stands and such that get checked every year, um, check the area. Uh, What I have found is I will try to access them in different manners um, because, you know, maybe my dad was hunting that walking in this way and maybe the deer probably maybe knew that, right? Because, you know, they're there, the sign's there, but they develop uh, a keen... um, instinct for for how we're moving about the property so i'm gonna switch it up and circle in here and get in you know and i have found that to work you know um some other things you know for the for the mobile stuff is i i have been hard pressed in my whole hunting adventure uh, which i've been hunting for a very long time that i have never found something quite as good as a first sit um i it just I know there's lots of guys out there that'll agree with me too. It's just something about the first sit that it's like you do. It's like you ambush them. It's like they have no clue. They have no idea. And I've been, I've just got on so many deer that way. Um, perfect example is just two years ago, my brother and I were hunting in uh, the state of Indiana. We, sh- we probably should have had one. Um, we came into Ohio on a Wednesday night. It was dark. We went into game lands Right before dark, it started to get dark as we were in there. We hung some sets uh, separate from each other, and um, I thought it was in a great spot. I could see where the acorns were rolling down this hill and kind of were piling up on this log, and I could hear them hitting the ground in the area, but it was kind of flat on top of there. So I just positioned myself to where the thermals would be pulling downhill, but I was kind of in like, it seemed like a thicket. And I feel like, you know, I'm only 15 feet off the ground. I'll just set up on this hillside just enough to where I'll catch the thermals pulling down. I think that the deer are walking across this top on this flat. And I was right. I was dead on. I turned my head an hour after being in a tree stand in the morning, and there was a monster buck there. And he was working his way to me. Now, um, he did get my ground scent from where I walked in because I walked right down to the tree stand, but kind of tried to circle back around it. But he walked in on the side that I circled in on. And he just started acting funny, you know, when they, you just know, they know something's up. I knew my thermals were pulling downhill. The sun hadn't come up yet or anything like that. And it was going to take a while for the sun to come around and kick my thermals up. Wind was blowing to my left side. The deer was backing behind me. I'm talking like my eight, nine o'clock and I'm got turned around. I got that bow back on him and it was probably about a 35 to 37 yard shot from what I was guesstimating. Didn't really have time to get nothing on them to, to really get a good reading. But um, there was a limb there. I didn't see it. Ended up missing a deer. I uh, seen a little bit of blood out there, but I I know what happened. I got one of his forearms is what I believe happened. Tracked him for a long time there. But like I said, we were talking about track, and I waited four hours and uh, just a little bit of blood. Yeah. But but um, it's just that was that first set. And it's really funny because I got kind of mad about it you know, myself. I'm like, ah, you know, just just doze it off, you know, whatever. I still got five days to hunt. No big deal. So 
right around one o'clock or so I went in, I pulled that tree stand. I went down this ridge line probably 250 yards from where I was originally hunting and I found a humongous scrape. There, it's really funny. I, I tell people all the time, like if I see a, like a, like a lone beech tree in the woods and it's like just high enough on, I'll run to that thing. I'll run to that thing. Cause I yeah. know there's scrapes underneath that thing. Uh, at least yeah. in the areas that I hunt, it seems to be, they, they love the beech trees and makes sense. You know, them leaves are on almost year round. Um, but yeah, sure as shit. I mean, big car hood scrape right below it, set myself up. And what I did was I took some paracord down and it was thick in there. So I pulled a shooting lane back. I just threw my paracord around some, some of these small beech trees and pulled them back so that I could get a shooting lane and, um, public land. So I can't cut nothing or anything. You know what I mean? So I, I get up in the tree stand and sure as shit, three days later, here comes this big buck. And I think it was the same deer, but if it wasn't, then it was just another really nice big 10 point. And he come in, and sure as shit, he got in front of me. And what did he do as soon as he got in front of me? He turned around and looked straight away from me. And he mm-hmm. he, he was getting my ground sent against what was going on because he was right in that shooting lane. And, yeah, I had that shot, right? And we talk about ethics shots. But he's facing, ass facing me, looking back towards me, through me. You know, not at me, through me. Yeah. He didn't know I was there, but something's not right. And, um, you know, I just didn't take the shot. 20 yards. I mean, 20, 25 yards is right there. But I'm not. I'm not going to wound that deer over me just saying, I got to get an arrow in him. I got to shoot because that deer might have turned and he might have gave me the shot I needed, but instead he just walked away. He just walked right out of my life and did it burn my, you know, chat my ass? Yeah, it did. It did. But I live with it easier knowing I didn't wound it. I didn't wound a deer. I didn't take an unethical shot. And, you know, the way I believe it, karma will reward me at some point and I'll have a nice deer that size or or bigger maybe and he'll come in and give me the right shot so i can at least one one yeah. can hope so <laughs> yeah and that's that's how you have to do it and and if you feel like you if you feel like you can't lay off that shot um you you know i hate to say it but you probably shouldn't be out there because you, you can't make those shots yeah. and and i've i've witnessed guys make some just awfully unethical shots and um, every time it, it happens, it, it's almost like, man, man, what are you doing out here? I mean, this is, this is, um, it's not just target practice here. We're not shooting 3d. I mean, you, you, you gotta make a clean kill and, and, um, yeah, that's, it's really important to be, uh, efficient, ethical, and, uh, and that's really all that matters. Mm. Um, if, I mean, if you're, if you're not ethical, you know, please just, develop a a habit that is yeah yep i agree man um and and you know moving forward into this conversation we are getting um we're getting really close right Uh, that's it's it's almost christmas morning right (laughs) we we all we all earned for it and love it and it's always like you get the first three hours in a tree stand and all of a sudden it starts to get hot and you're like oh no it's hot out here (laughs) or the bugs start (laughs) the bugs start flying around or whatever because it's so warm still um, but what are what are some things that you do um, kind of going into the season? You know, we all go out scouting for the most part. Um, we all shoot our bows and whatnot. But, um, you know, what what's kind of your process going into a season? Do you do anything, like, mentally where you're like, hey, man, I, I really want this benchmark, you know? There, this is a goal I'd set for myself this season. I'd like to play it through, like, like you said, maybe packing out a deer or um, – 
I want to shoot three does this year, right? I feel like that's my obligation. That's what I need to do. What are what are some things you 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 think about or look for going into a uh, an archery season here in Pennsylvania? Yeah, um, I don't know that I I necessarily set a goal other than maybe having you know a specific buck that that I'm after. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say every year I have one in, individual buck that that um, has kind of occupied my thought. So. That buck is always my goal, of course. Um, that doesn't always come to fruition because he dies before I get a chance, or or he just he just outthinks me. But um, that's having whatever target buck I have that year is is always the goal. The goal is to um, to not wound a deer. That's kind of my goal every year. Yeah. So my last year i missed a doe in the early season shooting out of a ground blind i had never hunted out of a ground blind before um the situation that i was in that was the only way to hunt the area and what i failed to realize in hunting out of a ground blind is it is super dark in there and you can't see your pins unless you've got a light on your pins Mm. and and i i sailed an arrow right over this doe's back and i thought you know (laughs) I don't, I don't do that. You know, I, I, I don't do, I, I feel like, a, I felt like I was better than that. And I clearly wasn't better than that. And, and up until that point, I had a heck of a streak going where I just, I hadn't missed a deer in a long time. And, and when that happens, it's super humbling. So getting back to the goal, my goal this year is to successfully kill buck or doe out of a ground blind because I've never done that before. So I would like to do that this year. Um, I've got a bunch of doe tags, and and where that ground blind is 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 a mecca of doe, which um, it's in a suburban area that that uh, they're they're begging people to get some doe out of there. So we're we're hoping that we can achieve that goal this year. But um, yeah, I and the other goal that I have um, more recently, I've I have filmed myself in the past, but I've never got a great a great. Uh, a great kill on film. So I would like to do that at some point, whether or not that happens this year. I don't know. Um, I tend to leave the, the camera and stuff, um, back at the truck when, when it gets hot and heavy and all I'm thinking about is spending every waking minute in the woods. And I don't have, I don't have the extra 30 minutes at the truck to make sure batteries are charged and stuff. So, um, yeah. So, I don't have, I never really have outlandish goals, um, but, but the, the, the over, the overwhelming goal every year is, is to not wound a deer or, or to recover every deer that, that I shoot. Um, does it happen all the time? No, but it's been, it's been a long time for me. And I hate to even say that knock on wood here that, that I've lost a deer that I've hit. I've that doe, I missed her clean. I mean, it went straight over back, watched it happen. And I'm sure it was a wrong pin scenario based on low light, but um, yeah, I, I other than other than the ground blind deer and and trying to get one on film, um, no, no, uh, no major goals. Okay, yeah, I, you know, you keep bringing up um, hunting a specific deer, so let's just get into right. How do you go about that, right? What what is your process, you know? I found this deer. This is the one. Here's how I found it, and here's how I'm going to kill it. Yeah, my process is 
I go through the same process every year. Step one is to find food. Once you find food, then you have to find bedding. And somewhere between food and bedding is always some, scra some scrapes and some rubs. So um, once I find bedding, then I try to find the buck beds, which there's always, you know, a couple. But there's always that one king bed that you're trying to find. And it's not always um, easy to find. And sometimes you never find it. But once I find what I deem is a good buck bed, then I start, after I kind of survey the, the area, then I back out of there and I put cameras on his front porch, in his front yard, parked by his truck. You know, I, I like to put cameras all around that guy's house to figure out how he's getting there. So those are cameras specifically set for one deer. That's not... That's not trying to inventory bucks. That's not trying to, to figure out movement times. That's just trying to figure out what that specific buck is doing. Once I can do that, I just get, you know, you can, you start wide and you start narrow it in more and more and more. And as the season gets closer, I transition pretty much all those cameras to cell cams because I don't really want to go back in close to him in August, September. Mm -hmm. So... After, after their cell cams, then it's pretty much just monitoring. And his path in and out of that bed changes um, as, as the season progresses, obviously. But there's always a window that you don't get him on any of those cameras. The buck I killed last year, the second and third week of October, he was gone. I have no idea where he went, um, but he wasn't even remotely killable because he wasn't there. And, you know, after that, that third week, he came back and he was running a pretty steady path um, that made him killable. Mm -hmm. So after you get them, you know, dialed in, their movements dialed in, then it's, and I, I tend to be a pretty passive hunter. I try not to get too aggressive until it's a last ditch effort. Um, what I deem passive is beyond 100 yards from the bed. Uh, beyond 100 yards, I feel like I can, you know, screw up a little bit. But once I get within that 100-yard bubble, in my mind, I have to be perfect. And if I'm not perfect, that's probably it. I don't own a 1,000 acres, so if I blow a deer off of my property, chances are I'm not going to get another crack at him because he's going to be gone. Um, so... Yeah, so it's all about casting a wide net and narrowing it down to that to his to his path. There's no way of knowing um, whether or not he sticks to that all year, and that's why nothing's a guarantee. But you can get you can you can really dial in on a deer with with the uh, the use of of cell cams and 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 trail cams. I mean, I know some guys argue that whether that is ethical or not but i'm telling you cameras are are my eyes i mean i i have to go to work i wish i could sit by that tree all day long and watch when he passes but i can't so um it's kind of a new school approach but it's an old school tactic of of patterning the deer right so that's it i mean narrow it down to to a couple main trails and try to find the second bed too because there's always a second bed there's sometimes there's a third fourth and fifth but if you can know Two areas where he's sleeping, you got a dang good shot of, of, of being able to have an encounter.
Now, you know, say say that you did find a bed and you found out where he is and where he's sleeping and where he's shaving and shitting and showering and all the other stuff. Now, you, right. you're going to set up, um, like, <clears throat> I'm guessing, like, on a wind-based hunt, right? And as far as the wind-based hunt, too, if you know where that deer's bed is, do you are you going to bed up strictly set up, like, off of, like, a scrape? Um, like a rub line, uh, like, is there any characteristic things other than knowing where that bed is that you're kind of like, I need to be here. Right. And then also, do you hunt more or less in the mornings more, or are you more hunting these beds in the evening? Um, so depends on the, the time of year, but, but the, the biggest feature for me, as far as my property and, and most of the areas that I hunt it's it's big elevation changes so thermals matter a lot um so i always try my best to set up on the the upwind the up thermal side of wherever i think he's going to be traveling um there are some thermal hubs you know that's a, a hot topic now but there's there's some bowls that that they work in that are great areas to they, they kind of spider web out of there you know the the bucks but um i'm always trying to be up thermal side wind um when thermals are that strong or or that much of a factor wind is swirling all the time i mean wind is rarely straight lined where i hunt i mean it's rolling around the end of the ridge or it's you know i mean you can you can throw a piece of milkweed out one second and and play a game of crossword on your phone and then it's going the other way when you're done i mean it's 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 so intermittent and hit and miss that that I can't base a sit off of wind alone. So I base sits more on on thermals and um, and and temperature changes um, than than I do wind where I'm at. Um, scrapes are are great. Um, I love to sit off of a scrape, maybe 40 to 50 yards off of a scrape where I think the direction I think he's going to be coming from to visit that scrape. But most of the buck beds that I'm that I come across are butted up against something really steep or really rocky or impassable so they're i i refer to them as one direction beds meaning there's only really one way they can get into those beds because they're not going to jump off a 10 foot cliff face to get down into bed they're just not going to do it so if you know where they're bedded and they're and it's a one directional bed if you can get between where he is all night and his bed in a morning hunt, it's a great spot because you're going to try to get him coming back in there and you know he's not going to be coming over that cliff face. So if you can find where he's where he is all night, which is usually obtainable by camera data, um, you can you can pick a spot between there and his bed because he's going to come back there, especially if it's his primary bed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like you said, if you know where the deer's bedding, and he's sleeping, you should probably be able to kill that deer, right? The only That's mistake right. is, like you said, I mean, you could be in a thermal hub situation where you think that, um, hey, the wind or the thermals are usually pulling in this direction, and something changes. It just changes that day, and that is usually where you find all your deer sign, right? Wherever the wind and the thermals are just fucking spinning and rolling around and all that other stuff, and, um, you know, the section that I live in here in Pennsylvania has a lot of way different elevation changes right um we don't have a lot of like sheer cliffs like this 
but we have a lot of mountains, right? There's, they just keep going up and up and up and up. But we also have a bunch of reclaimed coal piles. And there's like, you know, all mm-hmm. the coal silt and stuff. And you're, you got old tipples that were built and seams in between these uh, uh, silt mounds and all the other stuff. And it's just, it, it is the hardest. I'm telling you, like if you want to hunt thermals, you you have to understand and know what's going on in there. But at the same time, you think you know what you're doing, and then all of a sudden you're in this one spot, and you throw your milkweed out, and it's like, huh? <laughs> Why would it do that? Why would it go there? Yeah. Right? E- yeah. E- the sun's hitting it or something, and you're thinking, boy, I can feel, I can even feel an updraft, updraft here. And you let it go, and it goes behind your head, and it goes, shoop, and it goes right back down, and you go, well, that's why he's bedding here, right? Now, I can't predict it. Right. And he's bedding here because this is almost impenetrable, right? There's just no way to get in here. And sometimes what I've found, the only way that you can get a beat on them or kill them is to hunt the doe bedding that's near where they're bedding because sometimes it just gets stupid. They just start doing stupid things. And I've had deer chase does where the does looking at me and the buck looks at me and says, buddy, I'm just trying to get some tail here. I don't give a shit that you're there or not. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm like, well, you should have cared because there goes uh, an arrow through your heart. Right. Um, But yeah. Well, and and the other thing with thermals too is, and I failed to mention this, but a a cloudy morning, those thermals don't rise near as hard. Like, Mm. like, you know, we've all been sitting in the stand shivering and can't wait till that sun hits you in the back of the neck. And when that sun pops up, you can, I mean, when, when it's super sunny right off the bat and warming up fast, those thermals go up like crazy. So I'm, I'm more apt to be aggressive when I know it's going to be a beautiful sunny morning because I know my sense going up that hill way away from him, as opposed to a cloudy morning where it's just kind of going to sit there and kind of swirl around. So that's another factor that, that, uh, I'd like to throw in there with, with when I'm going to hunt or, or where I'm going to hunt is it's dependent on what the morning looks like. Yeah. That's why sometimes I think, you know, when you're hunting the leeward side of some types of area, it's, it's so hard to set up when you think you know which way they're going to come from, because, you know, you get in there early in the morning and your thermals are pulling down the hill, like you said, and then nine o'clock rolls around eight thirty, nine o'clock, whatever time. And that's usually around the time where that sun starts beating on that stuff. And then all of a sudden you feel everything going back up the hill above you. And you're like, well, you know, what the hell? The wind was blowing that way. And thermal almost always triumphs wind. I mean, it really does, unless you have a heavy, heavy, heavy wind. But that makes it so hard to sit in one spot all day and hunt all day in one spot because because of the way that that works. Whereas sometimes I've found where if you're hunting on, um, you know, the north slope, uh, if you will, then you know for the most part, like this shady spot that you're in is probably always shady. And it's just going to, the yeah. thermals are going to keep pulling, 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 pulling. And it makes it a little bit easier to set up on them deer. Now, on the flip side of that, you know, what's the vegetation look like on that side of the mountain? What does the, don't get me wrong, there are spots that I hunt. Like, I know a game lands, it's, it's total, it's polar opposite. The, the leeward side is not as good hunting as the north side is. But for whatever reason or another, and the acorns seem to love to grow on the north side of that mountain. I don't know why i'm not you know i'm not i don't have education in that stuff but i can tell you that it's just it's a it's a different place you know whereas a lot of people i would tell a new hunter they're like hey where should i go 
I tell them, hey, find a leeward side, find some good deer shit, and park your butt in there somewhere because you're going to start seeing some deer. Um, but yep. Um, and you you asked about whether or not I was a you know a morning guy or an evening guy. Eighty percent of the buck I've killed with a with a bow have has been in the morning. Hmm. And when I say morning, that's before noon. Um, I've killed a, a couple buck midday, one, two o'clock, and I've I, I think I've killed honestly I think I've killed two buck in the evening. And every other buck I've killed with a bow has been in the morning. Um, I like to hunt mornings. I feel like I've got a better shot at it because most of where I hunt is it's better for that that thermal rise is is much more conducive to to hunting the mornings than than the evenings. I just feel like I have a better chance in the mornings. I personally enjoy hunting the mornings. I just wish I didn't have to go to work yeah. in the morning. <laughs> That's right. There's too many mornings that come around, man, and the frost is on the ground, and I open the door to let the dogs out, and I'm thinking, what am I doing? I got to go to work. I know. <laughs> I need to be in the woods, man. And it's funny. I live in the woods, yeah. so, like, I'll open the door, and I can hear the deer running on the leaves outside of my house, yeah. and they're moving, and I'm I'm in there crying, making coffee. <laughs> I'm boo-hooing because I need to be out there on a scrape, you know? And that's just, that's what yeah. I like, you know, I like to hunt scrapes if I can. Like I said, I like to position myself to where I can catch a buck moving through an area, kind of winning that scrape or winning a nearby doe bedding. So, um, yeah, but yeah, it's, it is, um, it's an addiction, brother. It's an addiction. I, I love it. I can't get enough of it. So, yeah, it is. And, and there's so much that goes into it and every year it changes. Um, yeah, it's it's every year you're humbled by something you're humbled by a bad shot or or by a bad setup or being too aggressive or being too passive i mean you're just you're you're constantly making mistakes that you that you hopefully will learn from so yeah i mean the there's that you don't get wisdom without uh without screwing up i mean you, you have to screw up and you have to learn from your mistakes and you have to learn from others mistakes so um like I said, that's that's why I'm such a big proponent of of getting out there and and and, and practice killing and practice tracking and practice and doing the whole deal. I mean, it there there's not one part of hunting that is less important than another part. It all has to be right, or or you're not going to recover the deer. So sure. you can be a perfect shot, but if you can't scout, it doesn't matter. Right. Um, give me one second. I just need to plug a laptop in. Hold on one minute. Yeah. getting mad at me there he said i'm losing some juice here um yeah but do that but uh but you're you're absolutely right you know um i i also want to put out there that for some reason i have people reach out to me and they 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 feel like there is a like a scary part of asking for help when it comes to hunting 
I don't know like what, what that is or where that comes from. I mean, people see, like I said before, they see all this stuff on the internet, on um, the television. Uh, these guys are doing all this stuff, and they just are like, oh, man, you know, like I want to go do that, but I'm kind of just like scared, if you will, or um, I'm just – just don't want nothing to, to do with asking questions about it. And I find it more or less in adults more than children because it's kind of like a pride thing or like, hey, I don't want to be stupid, right? Um, but right. I like to put that message out there all the time that there is there's just a lot to learn. And even if you start now, you're going to figure out enough going down the road like by just doing the basic things like going in the woods and finding some deer poop. You find a bunch of deer poop, there's deer there. I can't tell you what deer are yes. there, but they're there. So you find some multifloral rose or maybe some green briars, some grapevines, something that you know the deer will hang out in because they're like big bunny rabbits. They will find the thickest stuff that That's they right. can find, and they live in that area. And especially if it's on edge, just like bunny rabbits do, and they're just a creature of edge. They like to live on edge. What I will say is, you don't need to be the guy that hangs a tree stand right off of the cornfield or the, the tree stand right off of this field because I find that a lot of people like to try to do that, but they don't realize that the deer are staging 30 to 40 yards in the woods and they're watching you in your tree stand, right? Right. So if you're in these areas where you know the deer are feeding, you need to find where they're staging first because they will do that. They, Or, like you were saying, if you find an area where the deer are feeding – you should probably look for bedding in that area because if there's something thick enough that's impenetrable, you may just stumble upon a buck bread, even if it's really easy access, right? Because how many times have we seen that? They, they're right here above the parking lot in a little patch of woods that nobody knows of or just looks at and thinks, well, there ain't no deer in there. And that's the 140-inch deer that's watching everybody walk from their trucks into the woods and that it happens it does you know i know plenty of guys more than you think yeah it does and i know plenty of guys that go out pushing deer and finally somebody says well push that little piece we never push that and you know somebody's sidewalling it they're kind of like right on the side of a deer drive and deer here he comes here comes a buck jay hooking around him like he's going to get back in behind him and wham you whack him right on the side of a drive but um you know and it's funny you say about it's funny you say about the rabbit thing too, because my grandfather used to always say that. Mm. He said, "If you know there's rabbits in an area, I guarantee you there's deer there. They love the same stuff. They love the brambles. They love the swampy stuff. And deer and rabbits have very similar habitats, as different as they are. Mm. And they will run circles just like rabbits will. It's a big circle. I had beagle dogs yeah. for years, yeah. and they, they always came back towards you, but." It was always, you knew when they were on a deer circle as opposed to a rabbit circle. That's right. Big, big difference. Yeah. That's a, I grew up the same way. We had beagles growing up, rabbit hunter. I learned a lot from that. I really did learn a lot from that. I got my own beagle, and um, God rest her soul, I still feel like to this day I didn't get to run her enough because once that archery bug bit me, and um, you know that kind of moves me into the next proponent of what I wanted to go over, um, and kind of like the last part of our, our conversation, um, you know, Pennsylvania has a rich history of uh, a lot of great things, but unfortunately we have a rich history of things that we need to change. And, um, you know, one, one proponent that I would like to see change personally is I would like to be able to hunt on a Sunday. Um, I hunt lots of other states where that's legal. I think that that helps with the non-resident 
hunters it and some guys don't want to hear that some guys don't want the people to come hunt pennsylvania but they're missing the point um there's a lot of money a a lot more money than people understand that comes from the non-resident hunters um that would bring in more non-resident hunters and then also you know that that lets me take the kids out on saturday you know or sunday or whatever and then dad gets the hunt on the other day um, things like that, right? I'd even be okay with seeing small game only on Sunday. Uh, anything, yeah. anything. And, and I think that even the small game on Sunday, um, I really like that because I feel like small game hunting is a dying thing. Um, yeah. it's definitely not what it used to be. It's still a lot of fun. And I still like, uh, you know, I just took my godson, uh, squirrel hunting not too long ago. And, um, you know, he's more than excited to go again. So, like, that's just one way. That's how I was taught, you know, my woodsmanship was squirrel hunting and then rabbit hunting. And then, you know, you move into deer hunting and stuff. And it's kind of like a thing you're handed down to. And um, there are some other things uh, I'd like to see changed or kept the same. You know, I've heard talks of people want to get rid of antler restrictions. I think that antler restrictions are wonderful. I think that they work great for our state. Um, I think that, you know, when Dr. Gary Alt did that, I never don't think I've ever seen my family members so mad about a hunting thing. <laughs> um, God bless that man because uh, I can't imagine the death threats and the things that come in from him being able to try and do that. Uh, I think that he was kind of like their 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 goat. They kind of their sacrilegious goat. They said, "Well, we want to do it, but we're not going to put our name on it." And he said, "Yeah, my career is about done anyway. I'll do it." And um. Uh, I think that he did a did did a good thing. Uh, they wouldn't have told you that years and years ago, but I will tell you that all my family members are on the same page, and they will tell you that antler restrictions are wonderful. One other thing I would like to mm-hmm. see changed is I do think senior citizens can shoot those deer. If they want to shoot a spike buck, shoot it, shoot it. I have no problem with that. Um, you know, I, I had this conversation with another gentleman, and he said, you know, they don't see as well anymore. There's a couple other things. I said, I'm in, I'm in. 60 plus, if they want them, go ahead and whack them. Um, but what are some things that, that you think of, you know, and it could be some of the, some of my thoughts or any other things. And I want you to hit it on the front side and the back side of that. So I want you to tell me things that thing or two that you think we do very well. And I want you to tell me a thing or two that you think that you'd like to see changed or looked at. Yeah. Um, uh, as far as the very well portion of that, um, I am, very much in agreement with you on the antler restrictions. I think that was one of the best things to happen um, in this state. My father has a trunk full of four corns and spikes that he killed growing up. And, you know, you look at that trunk full of skull caps and small antlers and you think, boy, I wonder what they could have been, you know. And um, it's a shame to, to think about about that. I mean, it, hunting was different then. It was. And there was more deer then. Oh, yeah. And, and there was herds of hundreds that you just shot into and hope you got a couple. But um, so that was different. But this whole antler restriction thing, I it was imposed within my life, and it didn't really change much for me. I mean, we weren't. I wasn't really interested in shooting the four corn after my first. The first buck I ever killed was a spike, and I don't think I've ever killed, um, or or had a desire to kill another buck that would that is non legal now. Mm. Uh, growing up, even as a junior hunter. Um, and I think most junior hunters, because of, of social media and their access to to what bucks should, you know, could be, 
um, I think a lot of younger hunters are are interested in killing bigger deer. I don't think, um, I don't think there's as much interest in killing those small deer anymore. One, you don't get as much meat off of yeah, them for point. for one thing, mm-hmm. and if you're a meat hunter, um, you know I, I I kind of hate that whole you can't eat the antlers saying. <laughs> I, I I'm not a big fan of that because, um, you know typically um, a a good a nice you know high scoring buck is probably a huge deer so there is more meat to it so if you're a meat hunter you probably should be trying to shoot older deer yeah. um but yeah I, I i so as far as the good i i'm with you on the antler restrictions i think that's a great thing um i also am a huge fan of this mentored hunt thing mm. with with these young kids getting into it early i think it's great not just not just for the hunting side of it but teaching the value of life i think there's so many kids that don't understand how precious life is and and to shoot a deer at seven six eight years old i think that exposes a lot of emotions that most kids never get to experience until they're into adolescence and i think an understanding of that is really important I grew up with my father on a trap line. We killed stuff in a very intimate way at a very young age. And I was taught the value of life and and what it means to kill an animal very early on at a, at a very, you know, intimate distance of a couple feet in a, in a trap. So yeah. I think that's really important for kids to be exposed to early and to know that, you know, this is kind of what has to happen in order for everybody to survive the difference between somebody that doesn't hunt and somebody that that um, the difference between somebody that doesn't hunt and still eats meat and somebody that hunts and eats meat is the person that doesn't hunt is just not man enough to kill their own food. That's the bottom line. Somebody's got to kill that for you, mm-hmm. and if you're not willing to kill it, you know that's you're putting that responsibility on somebody else, and it's probably in very poor conditions. So I'm a huge proponent of that. As far as the bad in this state, one thing I've been talking about for the last few years, in in my opinion, overall, I have a great opinion of the Game Commission. I think they do a great job, especially um, they have a new fur bear biologist, Tom Keller, who's doing a great job. He's getting a lot of kickback from this Pine Martin uh, reintroduction, and I think it's unjust. I think people have a false sense of the threat that Pine Martin's going to pose to to wildlife here already but um overall great opinion of of the game commission but the one thing i'd like to see changed is the pa elk non-resident tag cost is ridiculous it is so cheap to be a non-resident and apply for pennsylvania elk and while i have no problem with non-residents hunting pennsylvania elk I think it should be at the same cost that a Pennsylvania guy like me has to pay to get drawn in New Mexico, which is outrageous. Mm-hmm. And and the Pennsylvania elk are world class elk. Yes, they are. And and we're talking about if it's my understanding, um, Brian Hale with Elk County Outfitters. Um, I forget he was on a couple podcasts and he talked about this, but but it, if if I remember correctly, it's under like five hundred bucks for a non resident to to uh to hunt an elk in pennsylvania if you get drawn that is dirt cheap for we're talking about 400 inch bulls um i i would also like to see a quota for non-residents in pennsylvania because 
all of our CWD sanctions and, and you can't do this there and you can't do that, it's all because of that elk herd. It's, yeah, that's a, right. a, a herd animal. <laughs> and, and we are being, a lot of our rules are being made because they're scared to death that CWD is going to get in that elk herd, which is their cash cow, which I am all for them making as much money as possible on the elk because they're there and I'm all for it. But if we're, if we're the ones uh, having to compromise our, our whitetail hunting because of the elk, I feel like we should be given first crack, so to speak, at these elk tags. And I wouldn't be against, you know, five or ten non-residents getting drawn, but but sometimes it seems, I listened to it on the radio this year, the, the drawing, and it seemed like there was a lot of non-residents getting drawn from all over. And... Um, I don't know. It just seems it seems a little bit lopsided, and I would I would at least like to see um, an attempt to make more money on non-residents, uh, and in addition, uh, less non-residents being drawn at such a in in my view a lopsided rate. Yep, I'm on board with it all, man. And um, you know, I, I it's hard to talk um and and, and get into like political things, um, because it's you know, it's an opinion. I have the same opinion you have. I believe the same thing. I believe that the CWD um, most definitely <laughs> is for the elk herd. Um, not a biologist. I, I just stand behind what I believe. Um, I I believe that I've killed more deer than CWD, personally. Um, yeah. uh, yell at me, say, eh, that's not true, whatever. I just, I think that I'm in the same boat as you. I may not have killed more deer than CWD. Just something I like like to say and fire people up. But um, the CWD thing, elk herd, you know, my gripe with the CWD is here's a road. This side of the road has CWD. This side doesn't. So, um, you know, I understand you have to have barriers, but I don't know. Touchy, touchy thing. You know, um, if we get a biologist on air or something, he can explain a little bit better. I'd like to have one on each side of the spectrum go at it. I listen to that conversation. I'd like that a lot. But <clears throat> unfortunately, you're probably not going to hear that conversation. Guys are not going to want to. Never. Right. Yeah, that's not the best conversation. There's there's definitely a guy that has advantages on one side of the fence than the other. But, um, brother, this has been a wonderful podcast. I really enjoyed you coming on here talked about a lot of great things and um i'm I'm super excited for the season man i'm ready to rock and roll and i'm hoping i can check back in with you and um just kind of touch on how you killed a a a large deer this year because uh that would be what i really want to talk about and hopefully i can touch on the same thing and say yeah i got him i got him i made a good shot and um we got him out you know i shot him he went 20 yards and my brother and i were able to drag him to the truck that was 150 yards away right (laughs) right so right yeah i hope we can swap stories too yeah man well i want to thank you so much for coming through man and before we go um you know if anybody wants to reach out to you and ask you any questions about the podcast or uh, maybe uh some tips or tricks on some things that they know that you do and follow you where can they reach you at yeah my, my instagram is uh at steel parvo uh that's the best way to get a hold of me um other than that um i i do have a facebook but Instagram's your best bet okay Okay. Well, brother, thank you so much for uh, for coming through, and hopefully we can catch up with you here uh, later in the year or going into next year. All right, man. That sounds great. Appreciate you having me on. Thank you, brother. Good blood trails.
Yeah. Faithful listeners, you have finished another episode of the Keystone Chronicles podcast, guys. want to thank you so much for tuning into this one. I know a lot of you enjoyed this. That was a great conversation, especially on the tracking part of everything. want to thank Taylor for coming through. That was really, really a good time, man. And uh, thank you for all the support. I'm going to keep pushing out as much as I can for you guys. And we're going into archery season, and I couldn't be more excited. It's It's shaping up to be that time of the year, and I feel like I'm coming alive again. And it's just wonderful to be part of this culture and uh, wonderful to be part of you guys' listening experience. So here we go. Thank you, guys.